the book of Revelation where we're at right now. We're past the tribulation period. We're past the second coming of Christ. We're past the great white throne judgment. Those were all things that we studied uh, some in the last series, and then we got into this, this, this in chapter 20. And we were pulling out what it meant to stand before God and stand in judgment and, and Satan, his involvement, and Jesus shutting him down and the, the, the names of Satan that was given to him and what that represented and how all that was put away. And then we get into chapter 21, and I know that I said, we're going to come back and revisit the, the, the hell and the lake of fire. That actually comes out in chapter 21. Uh, it, it actually brings it out. And it, it actually mentions it in such a way of explaining the purification of what God was doing, uh, of how he made the new heaven and the new earth. I want you guys to have an open mind as we do this. Because I'm going to tell you, and Pastor Messer mentioned this a few weeks ago, we see these visuals of heaven. We see it in, in TV shows. We see it in cartoons. We see it even in, in, in church uh, to where we'll explain heaven in a, in a way of going up into the clouds and there being, you think of clouds, you think of harps, you think of angels, you think of halos, you think of all these different things. And then when you read the Bible, it almost doesn't add up. You're thinking, wait a minute. So I almost, I'm going to tell you guys, the way that we often describe heaven is very impersonal. It's almost like stiff and cold. I think of a place might add a gold, and I just think that it's going to be cold, okay? I just, it doesn't feel like home. It doesn't, it's, it's nothing like you, you imagine it to be when the Bible talks about these reunions and things. And then you get into the Bible, and you're thinking, wow, that's a lot different. We're studying the New Jerusalem. And I know we say that all the time, but what is the New Jerusalem? The Bible's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. We're, we're thinking about leaving this earth to a mystical place up in, in the clouds, and the Bible starts describing something different. So I'm asking you to clear your head and just read the verses. I'm not even going to tell you necessarily what to think as much as as we read the verses. You're going to be like, oh, what is that? And, and explaining what these mean and things like that when we get into these things. So... The, the, the key to this is the word new. And I'm going to explain the Greek definition of that because there is different definitions of new. There's different definitions of the word heaven. Uh, heaven could mean the sky and the clouds. Heaven could mean the, the stars and things like that. And heaven can also reference in the Bible uh, a, a place in association with God or a place of association with fellowship with God. That's why we will say things like heaven on earth. We're not talking about stars being on earth. We're talking about being in the presence of God or heavenliness or the comfort of God with us. So we're going to start in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So just let that sink into you what, what John is seeing after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. What is God teaching us? What are we seeing? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So take it like this. This is our heaven. This is our earth. Swapping it out. New heaven, new earth. It's, it's for the other one was passed away. So, so sometimes when our mind goes to another place, God's saying, no, it's still here. They were passed away and there was no more sea. We're going to break this down because all of this is fascinating. New in this passage means freshness. It, it has the idea of youthful. It means to regenerate. Uh, it, it has a meaning to have a new character about it. it that, that's what the Bible is talking about here. And this will make sense as we go through this. Uh, this isn't just the next heaven or the next earth. This is but the better heaven and a better earth replacing the old. 
And so I want this to come alive as we look through this. It's, 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 I've done a lot of refurbishing. Uh, you guys know that for the last number of years, I drive down to my mom's house. I ask her to pick a spot of the house. And then we go in and we flip it for her. And we've been doing that for years just to give my mom the house that she needs. And she has a house that she's been living in for a long time. We go in, we rip out what's rotten, what's bad, what's corrupt, what's messed up, what was leaking. And then we put in the new things, but it's still my mom's house. That's what it's talking about here. It says a few things that I want you to notice. It says, and there was no more sea. Uh, no more sea. Is this physical or symbolic? Uh, I would even challenge you guys to try to figure this out as we go through this. Is it physical? There's not going to be any more oceans here on this earth, or is it symbolic? Let, let's kind of talk about this. In Revelation 13:1, if we were to back up a few chapters going into this, it, it references the sea. We'll call out the sea. And it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rise up out of the sea. And then it starts describing with this seven heads and ten horns and all these things that come out, and his name was that of blasphemy. Okay, we're, we're talking about all the corruption and the evil and the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet and all those things that we get out of there. And the Bible will describe it coming out of the sea. All right, the Bible says in Isaiah fifty-seven twenty, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The sea represents a lot of things, and I almost went in and started breaking these things down. And to be honest, with our timeline of getting into the Christmas season and not having some classes that we normally have during Christmas and New Year's, I, I had to be careful of how much that I expounded on these things. The sea represents division oftentimes. It was talking about the, the division between lands. The sea represents things that are unstable. The sea represents a place of mystery and terror. Back when they were in Bible days, they didn't know what was on the other side of the sea. They weren't able to travel like we were able to now. It represented life that is raging. It represented unrest. These are all things found in the Bible and Scripture. Uh, when we think of uh, God destroying the earth, if you think about when Noah, during the times of Noah, and he destroyed the earth with water, that was the same thing. A lot of the things that we represented there was talking about this. And uh, this, a lot of people also believe that this probably means physically as well, that there would be no more sea. I'll explain that a little bit when we get into chapter 22, and I think it's really cool, the symbolism there. But if, if it's spiritually speaking of the fact that God's saying there's not going to be any more sea, referencing all the times that there was trouble, there was turmoil, there was, no un there was unrest, there was all of those things. It could have been God saying symbolically, I'm going to make a new earth and there's not going to be any of this unrest. Physically speaking, it very well could be that when God redoes the earth, he's talking about that there will be no sea. If you go to chapter 22, and we're not going to look at this, we're going to study this at the beginning of next week, it talks about the city, the new Jerusalem that's being built and coming down from heaven, and it says in, this, in the rivers coming out of that. It could very well be that the sea is replaced by the rivers of water coming out of the Jerusalem. And it talks about how it, it's, it's just fascinating. Anyways, when we get to that, I, I'm not going to start talking about it because it is so fascinating. So, but it, 22 gets into that. It says in verse 2, it says, And I, John, saw that holy city. Now think, visualize this. I mean, this new heaven, this new earth, how he's changing it and everything that he's describing. And I, John, saw that holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Now, I, I want you guys to think one thing and understand. Heaven is a physical, real place. We're not talking about just the idea of the spiritual realm. And I think sometimes we can think of it that way. As you know, you, especially if you see the cartoons, we're just floating around. You know, with that aspect is a physical, real place. And it's, it's tangible. It's something. It's, Jerusalem is a city. And the Bible describes Jerusalem as a city of peace. It's a place of godly rule that he's going to establish. And, and this comes out the more we read through this. Where does it come from? It comes down out of heaven. If you notice just a minute ago, when it was talking about something evil, when it was talking about the, 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 the evil beast that rose up, it showed it coming up out of the sea. The Bible describes that. It's coming out of turmoil, coming out of unrest. When the Bible talks about the new rule on this earth, it literally describes, and I saw out of heaven, out of that, coming from above down. Uh, if you've been with me when we studied the 40 days after the resurrection, when they talked about what came down and shook the tomb, and it said, and I saw an angel descending. It came from heaven. It was able to point, like, where did this come from? That power came from above, not from this earth. And it pulls us out, not of this sea. And he said, and I saw that holy city, a new Jerusalem. It's another parallel. Remember, it's Jerusalem is the thing that God established from the very beginning. All the promises tied into that. He swaps it out, refreshed, renewed, made better, coming down from God, out of heaven. And it describes this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, prepared. Where have we heard that before? You think about this, when Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 6, and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he was talking about. I'm going to build something, make something for you. This is described as a, as a bride, this visual of him seeing it. It was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I'm standing on the, or sitting on the stage of here in our church I've been on this stage many, many, many times through the years that I've been here at Fellowship doing weddings. And I, I get the best view of the house, I'll be honest. I, besides the other people that are up on the stage with me, I get this cool view because uh, it's this awesome thing to be next to the guy, especially the ones that they've never seen the bride beforehand is for like her dress and uh, you know, her dressed up and things like that. And they'll open the doors in the back, and then all of a sudden, I honestly, I'll be honest, I don't watch her at that moment. I turn and look at the dude, because it is such a fascinating thing at first. Sometimes he's just like, like just in a scared daze, and sometimes they get all emotional. Richard won't mind me telling this story. I should have pulled your picture up, Richard. Richard's up in our creative team running our sound upstairs. So uh, me, me and him, we're really tight. We've been really close friends for a long time. I was there when him and Maggie met and when they dated, when they got engaged and all that other stuff. And so she walked through that door and I turned and I have we, one of their wedding pictures is me with my hand on her shoulder, giving him this look. And he's got this pouty crying face. I mean, just, he was bawling like a baby. And um, you say you shouldn't make fun of him for that. Anyways, I do. So uh, he's, he's crying like a baby. And it was just this cool, epic picture of just him being just overwhelmed with joy. It's in that moment that it's, it's this ultimate dream you have of your wedding and, that, and, and seeing her for the first time and walking down the aisle and knowing that you're committing your life to each other. And, and that, that bride spends months picking out her dress and hairstyles and the, the, the nail polish that she's going to use and every detail of what she's going to be wearing and dreaming and going through the, the, the wedding blogs and all that other stuff to get ideas. 
And the Bible says she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you say, you're really exaggerating. No, so think of the verbiage of this. Think of the description. Think of how he's trying to make this come alive. Think about how I saw this as the bride coming down like a bride being adorned for her husband. That is the description. Because in our lives, it is one. How do you describe heaven, guys? I mean, how do you, how do you describe heaven? And I'll read a verse here in a minute. You can't. I, this was the first passage that I was ever going to study and I was literally going to say as I open this up, this, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to do a study tonight and you're going to walk out of here not understanding it. And you'd be like, oh man, why did I even come to church? I mean, like, there's Bible passages already that I don't understand. You're supposed to help us, Pastor Tony. But the whole thing is our minds can't get this. Our minds can't get it. Do you know why? Because if I explain something, I don't care what it is. If I'm going to explain something, I'll say, it's kind of like this. Let me draw you a picture. Or pull out my phone. Have you ever seen this before? It's a lot like this. We have nothing to compare it to. Nothing. There's nothing here physically on this earth that I could ever paint the picture that could wrap your mind around the splendors of heaven. So therefore, it is a mystery that God literally just teases. He, he like does a rough draft of, an, of, of a sketch, and then he paints this beautiful picture afterwards of what it was meant to be. That's what we're doing right now. So he gives us this little glimpse. He said, I'll tell you like this. He said, if you ever been to a wedding and saw this, you're going to know that that feeling, that emotion for the first time, uh, love and connection and everything is coming down, adorned, presented for you. This is what the cross did for us. And I'll tell you, I try to keep Sundays and Wednesdays, for me, separated. I, I love to teach on Wednesdays. I love to preach on Sundays. And I, I try to separate those things out. I want there to be a different feel and a different style. But I'll be honest, it's hard for me sometimes to teach through some of these and not want to preach through them at the same time. Let me show you. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, behold, I've done studies on the word before. It, it, it literally, before you read whatever you're going to read, it, it's kind of like, stop. Wow. Behold. Be amazed. What I'm about to say isn't going to make sense. Behold this. Something that would take your breath or make you gasp. The tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. I just read the, the ultimate de depiction of impossible. Moses wanted to get close to the presence of God. God passed by him had Moses turn his back, and, and he talks about the great, how his life was changed and how Moses would have died on the spot just singing and experienced the glory of God. Because we are so broken, undone, defiled in, in the sinful, cursed world that we are. And I know we're, we're saved and, and God has changed us and everything, but the, this depiction of the, the glory of God and us coming into the presence of God and this aha moment of what makes heaven so real, 
It's not so much the description of the stones and the pearly gates and the streets of gold and the transparency of the this and all this other stuff that makes it grandeur. It is simply the fact that the God that painted the universe and described the ocean and everything that you guys see. And guys, a, a lot of this, I hope you understand. Here I go preaching. It's all right. I hope you understand this. As we get into this, it's almost like in this world, we almost don't want to let go of some of the aspects of what we have to give up these boring streets of gold. And, and, and please understand what I say by that. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been out on the ocean before, if you've ever been to foreign countries, and I, I've been on mission trips to Rio, and I've been to some of these places, and you're looking at the beauty of God and questioning, how can anybody doubt that there's a creator? You see the sunrise, and a few weeks ago, I posted a picture of just the sky that was lit up with the most amazing colors and, and all these things. And then we, I, I was driving a couple weeks ago, last week I think it was, and it snowed, and all the ground was covered, and all the trees had this layer of snow on it, and it looked like literally God just changed the whole picture of our neighborhoods overnight to be this amazing picture that I don't care what artist that you think is incredible. God does a much better job at everything that he does in this creation. And you're thinking, man, how could anything outdo this? It's literally the new heaven, the new earth. God makes 10 times better. You think about it. It's 10 times better of all this creation that he wants us to behold. It's there. What makes it that? He turns the light on of the glory of God that shines on everything. The presence, the the very author that painted the skies, the very author that created man and created relationships, the very God that has the snowfall and the sunrise and the sunset and the ocean waves and all those other things, the very one that created the very image of that, he is the one that literally steps into our world to illuminate the glory of God upon all of it. In the Old Testament, for the longest time, they were separated in, in, in that veil. And I, I've spoken on these so many times. They could never get into the presence of God. And the closest we've ever gotten is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ through the coming of him as Emmanuel. It's the Christmas story. I will dwell with them, live with them. They will be my people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God will restore what was lost. The the only way to truly depict this is almost God goes back through the corruption of the curse. I think it's Revelation 22 verse 3 that he says, there will be no more curse. Refurb it, ripping it out to bring us back to what God intended. You think about in Genesis, what did God want from the beginning? He wanted from the very beginning for us to enjoy the earth and to us enjoy relationships and for us to know each other. That was his original intent. You guys think about that. His original intent was husband and wife and marriage and all these other things that he had of relationships. And I know after that, the marriage part of it and stuff like that. But the relationship for us to be with him and God created man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul and God walked with him and talked with him in the cool of the day and all these things. So what do you think God's bringing us back to? It's what he established from the very beginning. And by the way, God is not going to let Satan win. Satan came in to corrupt it, and God says, I'll throw him in hell, and I'll bring back what I did. God's not going to be like, oh, I lost everything that I had. No, when God got done in Genesis, you know what God said? God finished, and he said, it is good. 
And the only thing we can look forward to is not only what was good, but God will make it better. I, it's, it's hard to explain. It's, it's over our heads because sin is gone. So the, this is, brings us to verse 4. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there will be no more death, neither sorrow, no crying. Neither shall be there any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So what makes this earth so great? What makes this new heaven, this new earth so amazing? Because everything that corrupted it from the very beginning is ripped out of it. No more death, no more hurt, no more pain. A lot of people really believe that God shall wipe away all the tears from our eyes. It's referencing something dealing with our memories, and I can't explain that. I, I really don't know if that's even true. But the idea is, the last chapter we read, the great white throne judgment, and the idea is how could we not have any more tears if our mind went back to knowing those that we loved, our children, whoever were cast into hell. And in very, the, the very symbolism of that is, is there will be no more tears. Now, there's not a verse to prove it. It's just kind of connecting the dots. Um, but that's one of those things that we, we just let the Holy Spirit work on us as we read through this. Um, but all of these things, it's gone. Fear is gone. Regret is gone. Pain is gone. Anxiety and pressure. We get the beautiful earth that God's created, but without those things. In verse 5, and he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. It reiterates the same thing that we were studying just a minute ago. And he said unto me, write, for the words are true and faithful. This is one of these passages, and to be honest, you guys need to be ready because I will at some point come back and preach this. Why is it said this way as he gets to this verse right here? He says in this, he said, and he said unto me, he's talking about John the Revelator, write these things down. You know what's cool about that? Because what he's saying to write down is for you and me right now. And that's, that's why he's saying, he's almost like, like I, want, I want Tony to preach this at fellowship and I want all these other pastors to preach this. Write this down. I want this said. I want this repeated it, it, and when you see it from that perspective of write this down, like I want this to be repeated, he said that uh, he that sat upon the throne, behold, I will make all things new. Literally meaning that God's going to fix what was broken. And that gives us this reassurance of the, the heartache. I opened up this and we were sitting here talking about the people that we're going to lose and, and, this, and the sicknesses. And we talk about who has COVID and we talk about the fact that all, all, all this separation and social distancing and all this. And God says, hey, let them preach this message that that won't last forever. Write it down. I'm going to fix it all. That's how he was saying, write it down. I'm going to fix it all. Because when they get it to the end of 2020 and, and, and life is just too, truly crummy and every aspect of it just stinks, God, God, preach the message that God makes all things new. He will fix this. These words are for us to encourage us and to give us hope for those that are dealing with loss and death. For those that know I'm going to be saying goodbye to a loved one. I'm, I'm going to be planning out a funeral service. I'm going to have to do all these things. God says, I will, I will fix all of that. In verse 6, and he said unto me, <laughs> it is done. He says to John, the revelator, he says, it's done. I, the only other reference that we have even close to this is going back to Jesus on the cross when he said it is finished. 
at the beginning in Genesis, he finished up the seven days of creation. He said, it's finished. And he sat down and he rested. He finished it. Seven days completion. And he said unto me, he's talking about John the Revelator. He said, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. It's done. You know what Jesus was reiterating, and that's so many things that we could point out. He said, I promised, promise, take your Bible when he says, I promise, I'll make all things, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I'll bring you home to heaven, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll cover your sins. We're talking about redemption of mankind. He's risen from the grave. The, the empty grave is a reminder that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. One day, one day, one day, one day, and then he brings us to this point, and he literally says, I did it all. It's done. I, I kept my promise. I'm faithful to the end. He does what he says he would do. He restores, he redeems, he declares salvation of what he did for me. It's done. Notice how he words it too. He said, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last, and the, 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 which is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last alphabets of the alphabet. He said, I will give unto him. Now remember when he said unto me, and write these things down, I give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. This is, could be understood if you go to what Jesus was doing. And in the beginning of John chapter 4, he goes to the woman at the well and he sits on there. And she's one that had her life all messed up, married five times. And what did he offer that woman? I'll give you water that's living water. And you'll never thirst again. It was, a, it was a matter in this world, we're always thirsty, we're always wanting, we're always trying to fill that void, we're always searching, searching, searching. And Jesus made a promise, he said, I'll give you the only thing that will ever satisfy ever in this world. And, in the, and at the end of it, he says, I give unto you this water, those that are thirst, and he said the word freely to it. Literally meaning you don't have to work your way into heaven. You don't have to exceed in your good works. You don't have to do all these things. It was freely given because that's why he said it is finished and paid for on the cross. But what do we do to receive it for free? Nothing. Verse 7, for he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I love the words overcome. And, and, and you talk about who we are, we're overcomers. There's a lot of teaching on that. And because we've overcome through what Jesus has done, overcome death, hell, and the grave, we inherit all things. We talk about being joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We talk about what we inherit, what we get. You have to think of it like this. You're getting all that he has because you are his child. <laughs> think about his teaching of this. He, he literally ties it into that. He, he, he puts it into this. He said, and I will be his God and you shall be my son. It's just, it's just amazing how God ingrains in our mind the relationship that we have. And that is, we, we talk about it all the time. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. He emphasizes this. Yeah, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my son. You're going to inherit everything that I have for you. It's what makes it so exciting when we look at this. We're not just servants of God. We are the children of God relationship. Verse 8, he said, but, but the fearful, 
and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth forth fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It is a list of sins. Not that it's a complete list of sins, but it goes all over. I mean, if you were to go from the fearful and the unbelieving, that encompasses a lot of people. And then you get into the murderers and whoremongers, you know, sorcerers and idolaters. And then it ends with even all liars. Are right, I going to do a survey in here? Or online, you can comment. How many of you have never told a lie? Oh my goodness, you guys, you guys are in big trouble. <laughs> I'm just telling you because I've just read this list. And your sin, your specific sin is on this list. I'm sorry to tell you that. It, it, it's literally saying in this, they're all going to have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone forever and ever. I mean, and this is the second death, because it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So we die once, God pulls us out, you're judged again, and it's the second death that it's talking about. We've talked about that in some of the past lessons that we've done. And, and we, we get in, don't get nervous, I'm getting back to that. I was, I was setting you up, okay, so don't get nervous. There's a lot of cool teaching that goes with this. And the Bible describes this lake of fire. Now, the last chapter ended with that, and I started asking you guys some questions about the lake of fire, and it's their different levels of punishment and all those other things. And you even think about why this is. The only way to literally purify the earth and do everything is to rip out the bad and destroy it. There's, there's so much teaching that can be done with this, and I'm trying to be very careful because I'm doing, trying to do an expository study with this, and I can get off in this really deep doctrinal dive onto the side when it comes to hell and the lake of fire. And I think at some point we might just pull that out and do some of that because that, there's a lot of study that goes with this. Let me give you just a little bit because I said that I would. The Bible describes this in saying in Matthew 25, verse 51, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him portion of the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Literally, when we are talking about a hell, the Bible talks about literally the weeping and gnashing of teeth is descriptive, a description of pain beyond anything that we could describe. Hell is a place of falling. In Revelation 20, verse 1, it called it the bottomless pit. I am going to describe heaven and hell in this way. You take everything that God describes in one, and you, you, you have the polar opposite of the other. The Bible talks about in Revelation 22 that Jesus will be so bright in the glory that there will be no sun, moon, and stars. There will be no need for those things that illuminate because we'll have the glory of God. When you go to hell, it talks about the darkness that is there. You talk about there will be no more pain, no more dying, no more death. And there we talk about the second death, and it talks about there's so much pain that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You talk about the sense of falling. There's no stability. There's no holding on to anything. There's nothing stable in your life. It's, it's talking about literally the, the, the unstableness. And there will be no more sea when we get to the other side of it. And it talks about the city of Jerusalem and it talks about the foundation of it. Stability. The Bible talks about hell as a place of conscience. In Mark 9 verse 45, it talks about the memory that they have. You talk about the place of darkness. The Bible says in Matthew 22 verse 13, and cast them into outer darkness. Why is it outer darkness? Because there's the absence of God. God came to be light. There's absence of God. 
We read a list of sins like this and we think, how will we ever avoid this? Because we're all guilty of at least lying. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the adulterers shall, and all, shall have their part which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. I'm, I'm going to take a detour and I want to read a verse to you, which is, I think, another, another passage in the scripture that gives a list of sins. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about heaven. Never going to happen. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let me go back to one phrase at the beginning of verse 11. And such were some of you. All of us are guilty. Amen. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. You talk about when people sit there and say, well, I hope I don't go to hell because I try to be a good person. You are labeled and destined for hell if you've even told one lie. And by the way, the reason why heaven is heaven and we have all the description of it because it's the absence of sin. If you don't have your sin paid for and you walked into heaven just because of all the good that you did and you didn't eliminate the bad in your life, heaven would no longer be heaven because you just drug sin into it. But the idea that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, he talks about such were some of you and he talked about these words, you were washed cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are sanctified. The word sanctified means separated, pulled out. You were justified. Your right was made wrong by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the propitiation of your sin, the covering of your sin. When God looks down at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. He's made it right. We've been changed. So when people come up and say, there's no way you're going into heaven because I know you and you, you, you've lied and you've done this and that. And you can turn around and say, you know, what's and such were, that's what I was. I'm not that anymore. I've been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our assurance. We've been changed. We've been covered. We are the children of God. I've been born into a family of God. I cannot be unborn. When we were talking about Nicodemus a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, that was the whole principle of what must I do to be uh, to have eternal life. You must be born again. How many times can you be born? And Nicodemus said, can I go a second time into my mother's womb? He goes, nope. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. For people that have this idea that they have to keep being saved, you were only born once. You can't keep being born. Because once you're born, you're a child. I have three children. Nothing will ever change that. They are my children. Verse 9, and there came unto me one of the seven angels which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me saying, come up hither and I will show thee the bride and the lamb's wife. God uses the same angel that was just referenced in the tribulation period, the ones that had the seven vials. And if you go back, you study how that was the pouring out of the judgment upon them. Why? I don't know. But I also know that through this, there's a lot of contrast that God's pulling out about the, the, the lost and the saved and the, the good and the bad and all this. And the fact that the same way that he pours out judgment, he gives this. It's a transition, if you would. 
as we read these verses, you will not fully understand. And this is what I was talking about before. And it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them. You cannot know it, you cannot describe it, you cannot fully imagine it. So just as I'm trying to explain this, and, and I'm just going to kind of skim over some of this just because there's no way to fully describe this, because there's nothing in the existence to compare it. So when he says in verse 10, and he carried me away into the spirit, into a great high mountain, and showed me a great city, the holy Jerusalem descending down out of heaven from God. This blows our minds because we don't normally understand this. So we've got the new heaven in this new earth, and now we have this description of this heavenly city coming down to the earth. That's the description that we have here. It says a new heaven and a new earth, a new city. Uh, how many of you guys have ever heard the song Jerusalem by the Hoppers? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, some of you guys have. Uh, on our way out, uh, I asked them if they could play that song to that. That song is a description of this. And you hear that song and you're thinking, oh, that's a cool song about Jerusalem. It's actually a cool song about heaven. And that's where we get off. We're not talking about halos and angels and all that kind of stuff right now. We are, we are literally talking about the new Jerusalem, what God has prepared for us. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, he's coming to give us a new heaven and a new earth in this city that is the center of it. Here's the different things that it's called. The new Jerusalem, the tabernacle of God, the holy city, the city of God, the celestial city, the city four square, or the heavenly Jerusalem. You hear all these different terms, and there's referencing the new Jerusalem that God establishes here on earth. All of these are literally heaven on earth when we're describing it. Verse 11, having the glory of God. So this new Jerusalem brings down the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone, precious, even like jasper stone, clear as crystal. This, this description of this glorious city, describing the, the righteousness of God. And it says, and it had a great and high, the wall was great and high, and had 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and the names written thereon, and the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east three gates, and on the three gates, and on the south gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And it's really cool, and a lot of people, you get into a lot of teaching with this because of the fact is, what do they represent? So you got the 12 tribes on the gates, you've got this on the foundation that it's talking about on these walls, and this whole, the foundations of the 12, uh, and, and it's thinking, what does that represent? And a lot of it is just symbolic pointing to the promises that God gave them. God, I, I, he promised to make a, a heritage for us, and he promised to point to these things, and he made promises to the children of Israel, and he, and he made them an everlasting covenant with them. And a lot of these things, as we're reading it, it's literally our, it's stamped with all of those things, that I keep my promises, that, that God is faithful to the end. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and I talked with him, had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the walls thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length of the large and breadth, and the measure of the city with a reed, 12,000 furloughs. And the length of the, the breadth and the height of it are equal. It's an exact cube. And the measures of wall thereof in 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, the, of the angel. So if you were to put it like this, it is, it is 1,500 square miles. 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high. 
We don't have anything in existence that we could possibly look at to give a description of that. I mean, that's, this is where our minds go, okay, you just lost me. If you were to drive all the way through Ohio, depending on the edge to edge where you were, you, I mean, you're talking four or 500 miles, depending on where you're at and stuff like that. I mean, so, so how do you visualize something of this magnitude? I mean, you, you can't even wrap your minds around it, especially the height of it. And a wall that was high and great, this shows the strength and security. You got to think when they were talking about in the Bible days of the fortitude of walls and what things represented, it had 12 gates and the angels for guards and the names written on the gates of the 12 tribes and describes the eternal covenant that he made with them. And you think about it, think about even some of these things and what these represent. And this is where people's minds go crazy because there's not a lot of description in the Bible of it. But you think about it in the, in the middle of this new heaven, this new earth, there's this new this will be the tabernacle. There won't be a tabernacle. It says that, but the, the, the worship of God will be the very presence of God there. And in, in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would establish the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the middle of their people. And they would have all the 12 tribes of Israel going all around it, but nobody could enter. They were separated from that. Only the priests could go in and only during certain times and with the blood of Jesus or the blood of the lamb representing the future blood of Jesus and all those things that were so separated. And he says, and it's going to be gates all the way around and every door is going to be open and they'll always be open, symbolizing this total access to the presence of God. And it says that the building of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. We, we can't even describe these things. And the foundation of the wall of this city was garnered with a manner of precious stones. Now, I'm not going to even try to pronounce these because I would just butcher them anyway. So I just took them out of my notes. So the next two verses just describe every stone. is describing the beauty of it. So basically, God's even going around saying, uh, let me think. Um, take every, everything beautiful that you could imagine here on earth. Take every bit of it. Bring it all together. That's just the beginning of the beauty of what he's describing that he's going to go to prepare for us. And the 12 gates and 12 pearls. You can't even imagine the size of these pearls that were gates. Every gate uh, was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as, as transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple thereof. The temple is just a place of worship. You say, what will we do? We will worship God. We will worship, we have access to God. The presence of God, he will be with us and dwell with us. And the city had no need for the sun, neither of the moon, for the, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the lamb is the light thereof. It's the opposite of hell. Verse 24, and the nation of them, were, uh, of them were, are saved, shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. I tried to get an explanation from that, and I have no idea. Is that bad for a pastor to say, <laughs> to read a passage and just say, I don't know. I don't know. And some of the people that did have explanation, I was like, I don't know where you're getting that from. It makes me nervous when people have definitions and they can't explain it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. A lot of, a lot of speculation of what that means. You talk about this new world that we're going to be in. And the gates of it shall, be, uh, shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And shall bring the glory and the, and the honor of the nation into it. And there shall be in no wise enter anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, for that maketh a lie. 
but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is cool because God literally says, and people have said, do you ever think that at the end of it, that maybe things will start over and sin could come back? And God reiterates over and over there, no more, no more, no more. And he literally says, as he's talking about the glory of God in this inner place and the fellowship of it, and he said, by this time, no sin, no abomination will ever be brought back into this. We better than it ever was before. This new life for us will be the worship of God the way that it started. It will be the beauty of God's creation. It will be the, gla- the glamour and the, the, all the things that we imagined of heaven in this city that it describes, that, that the Bible talks about is so massive and, and the, the presence of God and the glory of all of these things.